Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle, author of Even As We Breathe, a coming-of-age story for a young Native American set in the western mountains of North Carolina. The novel examines race and class in the secluded microcosm of Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina, during the summer of 1942. David Joy, author of When These Mountains Burn, says, this is a period piece that illustrates and echoes our current time. A powerful story told by voices that ring true as scripture. A masterful debut from the writer we need right now. And Silas House, author of Southernmost, observes that even as we breathe, is a remarkable and important debut novel that announces a major new voice in Southern literature, and one that we have waited far too long to hear. Annette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so how about that uh, praise? That's pretty nice, right? <laughs> I am really fortunate to to have some kind words by some uh, several writers that I really admire. I'm very fortunate. Yeah, and it doesn't stop there. You've got uh, Charles Frazier, uh, New York Times bestselling author, who talks about it being a fresh welcome and much-needed addition to the fiction of the Appalachian South and its neglected people and places. And also Lee Smith, a uh, you know, well-known North Carolina writer and bestseller herself, who talks about uh, the fact that uh, through your debut novel, you're lifting the curtain to show us a South we don't know 
revealed through the struggles uh, of a young man growing up within the Cherokee Nation of far western North Carolina. Now, I don't know much about the Cherokee Nation of Western North Carolina, Annette, other than what I learned, you know, when I was very young, when my parents took me up to Cherokee and they had lots of trinkets and all this kind of thing. And there's been kind of an evolution, right, uh, within uh, the tribal nation up there in terms of what they had to do then to survive and now sort of how it's progressing. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of ground us in, in that culture and the history there? Sure, absolutely. So, um, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians is one of three federally recognized Cherokee tribes in the country. And that split between the tribes occurred uh, because of the Indian Removal Act the, um, of the 1830s. So, um, most people, I think, are familiar with the Trail of Tears. So, what happened um, was that the Cherokees were forced uh, to Oklahoma. Um, because of the, the Indian Removal Act. And those Cherokees who either hid out in the mountains or who brokered land deals or who actually returned all the way back from Oklahoma to what's the, you know, Western North Carolina area, um, they uh, formed what would become the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And we repurchased our land, um, which is now the Koala Boundary in Western North Carolina. So we are a result um, basically of resistors of, of Indian removal. And so early on, um, you know, this is a very rural area of Appalachia. Um, and like many communities in the area, um, just trying to survive for, for decades um, was difficult. And so we have always been, uh, we've always kind of founded our economy on tourism and for uh, a lot of tribal nations, tourism meant selling what the movies taught people to expect when they visited, what Westerns taught people, or even literature uh, taught people to expect. So, you know, my uh, own family has a long history of um, the working in the tourism business, having um, souvenir shops in Cherokee. And so, you know, we used to, to sell things like um, colorful headdresses, which the Cherokee never wore or teepees, which we never lived in, you know, those types of things, because that's yeah. what sold. Um, but we have been fortunate enough to exercise our sovereignty in, uh, in different ways in the past couple of decades. And so we have a thriving gaming industry. We have a casino, um, that has changed the, the face of our economy and also allowed us actually to um, be more authentically representative of who we are as a culture. Um, even if you go into our stores today, you'll see more um, authentic Cherokee art um, and and, um, and and crafts and products um, than than you may have seen when you visited as a, a child. That is not to say that we have <laughs> wiped the landscape of of plastic tomahawks, but <laughs> I, I, I know <laughs> I, I probably have a, I probably had a plastic tomahawk up in my parents' attic somewhere still. But uh, you know, it uh, and the reason this background is helpful uh, is because not only does your book explore uh, the themes um, you know important to that uh, setting, 
but also um, you're the first member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians to publish a novel. So um, talk about that a minute. Just first of all, why are you the first? Uh, why hadn't it been done before? And how does that make you feel uh, to do that? Yeah, I, I am the first. I actually didn't realize that I was the first published novelist until after I'd signed the contract. You know, I, I wasn't ever attempting to be the first novelist. I should put it that way. Um, so it didn't really set in until after I signed the contract with the University Press of Kentucky. Uh, and I started thinking about um, who, you know, who came before me in terms of novels. Um, and I've always struggled because I'm also a teacher. So I often get asked um, what books people should be reading. Um, and I can answer the question about Native authors. I can kind of answer the question about Cherokee authors because there are several authors, for example, from the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. Um, but I cannot answer the question about Eastern Band writers. There are um, other Eastern Band members who have published, you know, some poetry and nonfiction. Um, but there, there's just never been an Eastern Band novelist. Um, and to your question of why, it's not because there aren't stories. It's not because um, my community doesn't isn't home to so many talented storytellers. Um, I think it's just access to, you know, that, that business. I mean, because publishing is a business and, um, and it's just, it's kind of like everything else. If you don't know someone who has been through it, then it's much harder to find your own way through it. Um, and, and, you know, I wish I knew. I hope that I am not the only Cher Eastern Band Cherokee novelist for very long. <laughs> that you know, that's all you know I can hope for. But um, it it is um, you know, it is a sense of responsibility. And I've said this before to other people. My main goal um, with this book is that I can walk into my local grocery store in the food line in Cherokee and see people I know and they will approach me because they like the book, not because I got something wrong, not because <laughs> they're mad at me for, for how I portrayed Cherokee. Um, and so if I, you know, if I can bring a story to um, the community that it represents, um, then, then that's what I want to do. And so I, I've, been really happy that it's, you know, been embraced by the community. Yeah, well, that's great, uh, Annette. So this is a, this is historical fiction. It's uh, Appalachian fiction. It's uh, set uh, in the area where you live, which is why people come up to you at the food line, maybe and talk to you about it. <laughs> but, uh, and the title, just focus on that for a minute, even as we breathe. Uh, and I'm looking at the book cover here. The, the listeners will be able to see this in the show notes at charlotteriespodcast.com. Um, I see uh, trees, uh, I see green, I see uh, the title, even as we breathe. And it, uh, of course, you know, uh, trees, uh, you know, bring us life, oxygen. And so even as we breathe through that kind of, I don't know if that's the metaphor you're looking for, or how, how did you land on this title and this cover? Um, well, I landed on the title um, because it was actually a line in the book before the editing process. So um, the last, I think it's even the last paragraph of the book, 
Um, this is how it reads currently. Um, however, it can also be said that bones shift and decay, blood dries and flecks, flesh withers. Uh, the original version actually had one more short line that said, even as we breathe. Um, and so in the editing process, I actually took that out just um, because I wanted it to be um, a more subtle um, hint to, to one of the, the kind of overall messages of the book, which is that um, this book is divided into um, kind of motifs of bone, um, blood, and flesh. Um, but in, because I want to make a, uh, a comment on how we create identity with these very, um, you know, short, short lived elements, right. That what is really important is who we are, uh, and who our spirit is. And so, you know, we often define people by the color of their skin or their ancestry or, um, all kinds of um, very um, short-lived, you know, elements of the body. But but what you know is more important is um, what our spirit is like. And so the closest element to that is the breath. Um, and so that comes through um, in a few different ways in the novel references to um, to our the breath of our soul really um and then the cover yeah. i had nothing to do with <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. i i did have a conversation with the press um in the process and they and um was asked is there anything i don't want um and i you know my response to that was just nothing stereotypical uh of native people you know nothing you find in the trinket stores we were talking about right. earlier um yeah. And then also I said, no mountain landscapes because a lot of Appalachian writers have just a mountain landscape on the front of uh, their book. And they have some beautiful covers, but I didn't want to just kind of fade into the background um, of some of those, those books um, that have been out. And um but the coolest thing that happened with the cover was that the um, designer sent the design and this, it was almost a poetic description of how he made the choices for the cover. So if you notice the book, yes, the book has trees, but they actually are lined up in a way that um, kind of hint to a mountain landscape, right? That, right. Um, you know, it gives us a sense of place um, that the words um, kind of are shadowed into the trees, which indicates it has mystery in the book. Um, and I think the color is both indicative of kind of the, the focus on the environmental setting, but also the time period, kind of a military green uh, to it as well. So I was just um, really um, impressed by the thought that went behind the cover. There's no way I could come up with a cover. I don't, yeah. I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This falls into the, uh, you know, less is more category because only five trees on the cover. So, mm -hmm. so there's plenty, there's plenty of room for space and, and you provide a lot of space in your book for us to think about these issues. We're going to talk about race and class today. 
But uh, your inciting incident, back to what you said just a moment ago, um, you know, about the earth, uh, there are a couple of places throughout the book where you just uh, have one line, one word on one line and, 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 and including when Clowney is thinking about uh, the death of his father in the opening scene of the book, which I call the inciting incident. And he's remembering grease, lilies, tobacco, vanilla, fresh dirt, pine sap. And immediately you get this image, you know, of a coffin of people standing around, you know, in a graveyard, you know, putting dirt on and then somebody's breath, you know, or their smoke or whatever's going on. And then the lilies, you know, that may be being laid there. And that's the thing that kind of carries through because it ties back to the earth to some extent. But the other thing that carries through, which I think is a good setup now for the first read you're going to do, which is at the beginning of the book, is this idea of escape, you know, and, you know, wanting to escape uh, your past or escape where you live. Um, now, in some respects, this book is about escaping and then finding your way home. But early on, it's about escaping, right? And mm-hmm. I did want to to play with this notion of what, you know, where is the prison that, that we are escaping, both the literal and figurative? And so there are a couple of different uh, types of prisons in the book. As you mentioned, County is deciding uh, if his home is a prison or not, and if he wants to escape or not. Um, and then there's a character of Zabzi who uh, is telling the story of his family being in a stockade um, as, as the um, removal was beginning. Um, and then really one of the the um, main impotences for the for why I wrote the book, there's there's several things that came together, but, but one of the things I'm aware of is that during um, World War II, some Japanese internment camps were set up on Indian reservations out West. And I've always found that fascinating to think about. This is the place where the federal government has set up Indian reservations. And this is also the same land where um, internment camps, which are prisons, um, are set up during war time. So, um, so yeah, that, that concept was very important to me in the book and, you know, when we feel the need to escape and when it feels, um, like our home sometimes feels like a prison. Um, so I will read, um, a couple of paragraphs from the prologue. About the place, when I take you there or when you find it on your own, just know that what the old folks say is true. This land is ours because of what is buried in the ground, not what words appear on a paper. But also know this, what is buried in the ground isn't always what you think. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the story, the beginning of all of us who call ourselves homo sapiens. Fitting, I guess, that what I found buried just as I was trying to figure out how to become a man and still be human was the very thing that threatened to take it all away. Just when I began to see what taking control of my own life might look like, I realized I was not who I thought, and neither was this place. That summer in 1942, when I met her, really met her. Before I found myself in a white man's cage and entangled in the barbed wire that destroyed my father, I left the cage of my home in Cherokee, North Carolina. 
I left these mountains that both hold and suffocate and went to work at the pinnacle of luxury and privilege, Asheville's Grove Park Inn and Resort. I guess I had convinced myself that I could become fortunate by proximity, escape Uncle Bud's tirades and my grandmother Lishi's empty kitchen cabinets just by driving a couple of hours up the road. It sounded good to tell folks I was raising money for college, but the truth was I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't want to do it there anymore. And if I stayed any longer, I would become rooted so deeply, I might as well have been buried. Knowing that she is gone from this earth, all I am left to do is wonder what remains of her here, for me, for anyone who knew or didn't know her. What happens to the memories? How long do they survive? I can still see her dancing, head thrown back, laughing. If there's one thing old age has taught me, it's that there are many kinds of love. She taught me that sometimes we feel many different kinds with one person. And now it seems possible that love is the only thing that will outlive us all, but only if we continue to tell its story. Yeah, that's that's a great uh piece of the book here because it ties into so many elements of what happens here and just you know just a little bit about uh uh you know the plot you've got this setting the grove park inn um which is a majestic setting even today but uh, i'm sure back in 1942 with it perched up on top of the hill looking out over the landscape it must have been you know with those rock walls and everything must have been really a view i'm sure in your his in your research you probably found some photographs from the time period that that you know you used to kind of tell the story Yes, actually, most of my research um, was from photographs, because as you can imagine, there's not a lot of um, written account of what was taking place in a <laughs> in a uh, prisoner of war camp. <laughs> so they're not allowing um, the media in, per se. So um, I you know, really spent a lot of time looking at photographs, both of the Grove Park Inn and of Cherokee and what the landscape looked like what roads look like. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at roads, <laughs> trying to, to consider, you know, travel time and things like that. And, um, and then also what products were not only in existence, but um, available in this part of the world um, during that time period. Yeah. And so uh, he is going uh, from his home uh, to the Grove Park to work for the summer. He can't, serve uh in in the war because uh he has a, a birth defect in his foot and so everybody's looking down on him for that and down on him for his race in fact there's a scene in the book where he tries to go to uh the movies uh with uh his boss and there's a little scene you know we don't serve indians here and his boss comes to his defense and calls the ticket taker a proper racist cuss and then they go up to the <laughs> to the to the balcony to watch it but but in that time frame um, I guess then and now what's different and what's the same about these issues you explore for Native Americans regarding race and class mm-hmm. um, unfortunately there there are a lot of similarities um, but you know they're there have been, uh, there's been some progress, of course. Um, I think what has changed, um, if we're really looking at um, how um, our community, the Cherokee community interacts with the communities around it, 
one of the things that has has changed is um, because of class, because of um, economies, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Cherokee's economy used to be pretty much the same as every other um, Appalachian community around us. And then gaming changed that a little bit, or at least the perception of it. Um, we still, you know, certainly um, have a community that's in poverty and, and working to come out of poverty, but there's a perception um, that that we now have all kinds of money and things like that. And that causes other problems. That causes um, racism to take a different tone, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so... So that is a little bit different. Um, I think if you look at this country in general, um, you know, racism has shifted to to just being more subtle, um, kind of um, veiled in, in a lot of ways. Because you know, I would we at least hope that that people um, are not acting in overtly racist ways, although I can't even say that for, for certain. Right. Um, but, you know, hopefully more so than, than 1942, but you know, it's still alive and well. Um, yeah. it's, I have, I have, um, family members and friends who look far more, phenotypically native than I do. You know, I've got blue eyes and lighter skin and all that. Um, and they, they tell stories of, you know, modern time walking into a store and be, and being followed just because of how they look. Um, it's pretty common occurrence. Well, you used, uh, you know, you use these uh, beautiful settings, uh, as you said, the Grove Park Inn, but also, um, the setting, of the Cherokee nation, because, uh, you know, the main character finds his way to a waterfall. It's picturesque, deeply wooded escape. You deal with, you know, the burning of the trees, you deal with a lot of things, uh, that are conflicting in both settings. Um, but you also are not just writing a book, uh, you know, about race and class and these kind of things. You got a story to tell and you throw a little mystery in there. We got a secret room. We got a, a murder, perhaps. Uh, we have a bone that's discovered, and and and, and County, he's he's right smack in the middle of it. So you've got all this going on uh, in the book. Uh, you know, betrayal, uh, love, all these things that are happening. Um, but then you sort of, I think, come back to through all this process. I think him trying to come to terms with what he really wants. You know, he he thought he wanted to escape but what does he really want? You know, um, and this message you read in the prologue actually comes into the end of the book too, because I actually noted a line when I was reading it. Uh, and it has to do with the land, you know, the land is ours because of what's buried in the ground, not what words appear on the paper. And those who know the stories of this place simply wait for them to wake from hibernation. And that tells me that there's a, a culture there that's full of stories and story is what people resonate with and that story sort of draws people to place. And uh, I don't know if I'm getting close to, or not to what you're trying to do. Here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seems to me like uh, you're really speaking a lot to what the land has to say. And I wonder if that's part of your native culture to be so tied to the land uh, and, the, and the spiritual nature of what the land has and the stories that it can provide. Yeah, one of the, the things I wanted to make sure I did was, um, 
to provide a setting that, and characters that indicate that, that indicate the importance of, of land and, and everything that makes up this place where we live, but also to um, address some of the stereotypes that have um, been imbued in Native literature, especially Native literature not written by Native people, <laughs> that um, often mysticizes, you know, being Native American, that there is some um, inherent magic um, that, you know, we can connect and commune with, with nature. Um, and, and my point being that um, any community that has survived in a place for over 10,000 years has a connection to how to thrive here and also take care of this place and respect this place and, and in a sense, fight for this place. Um, and so I don't think, you know, that that is something that happens just because we are native people, that it's something in our DNA maybe, but that um, we have had such a long history of being caretakers of this place that it has to be part of, of, who, of our culture, of who we are. So, you know, I understand why um, Native Americans are often thought of as having some kind of special connection to the land. Um, but I think it's more about our communities having that connection um, to the, the place that, that we are from for so long. It's not something that, you know, if a, if a, a child is born with, you know, native DNA and lives in, you know, you know New York City and I don't know that they're going to have this natural connection plan. <laughs> well, that's a very, that's a very good point. Yeah, I, I, I guess I was thinking about you know the, the land that uh, has been you know sort of the ancestral landscape that you that they live on on the koala boundary and and the people that live there and their special attachment to that mm -hmm. you know place. Um, so that, that's a good point. Well, let's do. We got a few minutes left. Let's do the writing life for just a minute. You're a uh, um, you went to Yale. Um, and College of William and Mary, and you got these awards, and you got this great education, and then you take it back to teach high school, um, when probably you could have done lots of other things, and you know, then go back to, you know, where you grew up and and teach high school, and I read somewhere that you 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 know you feel like you're actually taking the education that you obtained, and you're gratified for it, and you're sharing it, you know, with others, um, like yourself. Do you do you feel that as a calling to some extent? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's where I'm happiest. I had, um, for instance, I had taught for a few years and then had taken a job as the executive director at a nonprofit foundation. And so, you know, as you can imagine, I was making about four times more <laughs> money in that job than being a North Carolina public school teacher. Um, and it was far less stressful, had far less work. I wasn't taking work home on the weekends like I do as a teacher, but, um, I, I, my heart was not in it. Um, I missed my students. Um, I miss my colleagues too, other teachers who are always thinking and problem solving. And, um, I just miss that energy and my writing changed. I, um, I think being a teacher, informs my writing so much um, in, 
and it's kind of weird because I have, you know, I'm stressed out all the time and have all this work to do. And, um, but my writing is better. I, uh, yeah, I got a, a text from the mother of a former student not long ago after the book came out. And it was a screenshot of her conversation with him, asking him if he had read the book. And he's a Cherokee student. He's um, he's uh, Eastern Band Cherokee, but I had taught him in AP literature his senior year, and now he's a freshman in college. And um, she asked him if he had read the book, and he said, um, yes, I don't think I'll ever connect with a character like I connected with County again. He said... Mama, they just don't write about people like us, mm-hmm. and that that just did it for me. I mean, um, there's yeah. there's no other amount of praise, you know, that that I could get. So um, it's, it's it's those students, I think, that sustain me. That that is a great story, um, and, and yes, that's worth the price of admission of, of putting your butt in the seat to do all the hard work to get it done, to, to have somebody say something like that. Now that you, you know, you, you've been a teacher, um, you, you've written this novel, you've written other pieces too that have been published, um, shorter works, but I, I'll ask this question sometimes with authors who've been through this process, you know, um, and that is, uh, you know, what would you tell your younger writing self about writing something of value that you've learned through this process that might help your younger writing self? I think I would tell my younger writing self um, to, I I would tell them the secret of organization that works for me. I would, um, I learned with this novel because I took a writing workshop through the Great Smokies Writers Program um, that gave these assignments and they're ridiculous assignments in retrospect, but to write the um, synopsis, the first chapter the last chapter and a climax chapter over the course of the workshop that's what we did from nothing um and writing the synopsis of a novel is the hardest thing ever um so but once i had that structure because of you know because i'm a teacher because i'm a mother of two children uh, and a wife um I was able to to really focus where I, where I need to go in the short amount of time I have to write, um, and that that would have saved me years. I have a this is my you know my first published novel, but I have another novel manuscript that is not published, and that took me forever, forever because I had no structure. So, um, and and I say that only for me that it might work for other people. Um, but I think I do truly believe everybody has their own process. Um, but for me to have those, those major pillars in place, um, change, change the game for me. Before I give you a chance to wrap up, I just want to share with our listeners that, uh, we're going to be jumping over to our, uh, Patreon channel, our listener supported, uh, exclusive content channel for those who help us uh, on the podcast here to talk, uh, you know, more with, Annette uh, about uh, writing and, and writing craft. And we're actually going to do, do something uh, fun. How about this for a title? What mountain biking and writing have in common. And uh, we're going to do that. So, you know, for a very not for a very nominal monthly fee listeners, you can get all the content, including this one. So jump over there. If you're interested, uh, that'll be uh, released at the same time as this episode. So um, just to wrap this up for today, Annette was running out of time. Uh, 
what do you hope, uh, you know, readers, uh, take away from your book? What do you hope they get out of your book? Um, and, uh, cause you put a lot of time into it. You put a lot of effort, uh, by the way, it's a great book, but tell us what you think and hope people will, uh, will take and enjoy from the book. I, I hope that they come away with a better understanding of the complexity of native communities. Um, and then also how very similar we are, um, to our neighbors and how, um, these issues of, of class, race, and identity, citizenship, um, you know, are something that bond us all together. And that's something that, that hopefully we can, can look at, um, from a historical perspective to maybe have a better understanding about where we should go in the future. Yeah, that's great. Well, Annette, I want to thank you, uh, for, being on the podcast has been Annette uh, Sanuk Clapsaddle, uh, author of Even As We Breathe. And uh, it's, it's a great, wonderful book. Uh, uh, thank you, Annette, for being on Charlotte Roos podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.